of Worship, your source for commentary and discussion on worship, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Well, hello and welcome to the Active Worship Podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. It is great to be here. I have taken a little bit of a break since my last podcast recording, and that is just because I was sick. I had allergies, uh, still dealing with them a little bit, but they are better, so we can at least move on with the Psalm Project. And so uh, we are here today at Psalm 83, which is a a fascinating uh, psalm to me. It is a psalm of Asaph, and as I mentioned in the last uh, episode, it is the last psalm of Asaph of this uh, book three that we will be examining before moving on to book four. Um, and so it is it's just simply titled a song, a psalm of Asaph. And the theme of this particular psalm, it is fairly short, not not terribly lengthy, but the theme is a request to ask God not to keep silent. The psalm really is a model uh, prayer for the Christian whose spiritual warfare is calling upon God and not relying on their own strength. Instead of calling upon the Lord uh, to destroy our flesh and blood enemies, we call upon him to vanquish the, the spiritual forces of war. And I, I've said something like this before, but we need to remember that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. And uh, spiritual warfare is a very real thing. A lot of people hear it and it goes in one ear and out the other. And they just think it's maybe some sort of spiritual talk. There's nothing to it. Uh, Sort of like demons and even exorcisms. People sometimes get the idea, well, this is just Hollywood. This doesn't really happen. Uh, But need I remind you that Spiritual warfare is even more real than the physical realm in which we live. In fact, the physical realm in which we live is subservient to the spiritual realm. What happens in the physical realm is impacted by the spiritual realm. And so spiritual warfare is a very real thing. And so this is a a model prayer for Christians uh, going into battle, really, with with the enemy of the world, or the enemy of God's people, and so um, uh, th- this psalm really asks God not to be silent. Uh, you know, sh- reveal yourself, God. Um, and so this is a desperate plea. So let me read it, and then I will get into my commentary. Beginning of verse one. Oh God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay, cra- they lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Jabal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assur, 
also has joined them. They are strong. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and all their princes like Zeba and Zalmanah, who said, Let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. So there are several things here that stand out to me. Uh, most notably here are the geographical and historical references in this psalm. It is replete with such references. Uh, but in verse 1, it really sets up the entire prayer. God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace. The heart of the covenant is the promise that God will be present with his people. And so to the psalmist's eyes, God is absent from his people if they are defeated before the enemy. Verse 5. This is an interesting section here, verse 5. It says, for they conspire with one accord. And then it references in the verses to follow specifically who they are. And so the nations involved in the plot against Israel are listed here in verses 6 through 8. And there have been numerous attempts to identify the historical situation behind this psalm. But really no time period is known in which all of these enemies were actively hostile toward Israel at the same time. Yes, they have been active toward, against Israel and plotted against Israel. But there's not really any reference to them doing so at the same time. Keep in mind, Israel has faced the hatred of pretty much the, the entire world from the beginning of their existence. And as a nation, as a country at least, that still occurs today. The closest reference here would be Jehoshaphat's war that's recorded in Second Chronicles 20. But there's no mention of Assyria here. Verse 8, he says, Assur has also joined them, and they are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Children, that is Moab and Ammon in Genesis 1930 through 38. And you can read that reference uh, referring to Lot. Um, Lot, if you are unfamiliar, you probably heard the name uh, specifically in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, he was a man in the book of Genesis, uh, most notably in chapters 11 through 14 and chapter 19. Um, and one of the most memorable events was when he journeyed with his uncle, who was Abraham, or Abram at the time. Um, and he journeyed away from Sodom and Gomorrah, which God would destroy. And one of the reasons he is known is because his wife, 
turned and looked at Sodom and Gomorrah, disobeyed and looked at Sodom and Gomorrah, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, we have many different images in our minds of how that would have played out. Maybe we shouldn't laugh at it, but, um, you know, it's almost like a Medusa-type story. Somebody becomes a pillar of salt. Um, But another notable uh, story in the book of Genesis is he was intoxicated by his daughters so that he could have sexual intercourse with them and ensure that that their family would have descendants. Um, in other words, male descendants is what they, you know, wanted. Um, but so his daughters did that. So that that is, again, people bring this kind of stuff up and say, well, the Bible condones this. The Bible does not condone that type of act, okay? Uh, that Just because it's in the Bible does not mean the Bible condones it. In fact, often the Bible has these stories uh, because uh, th- that sort of act is condemned, not condoned. Um, so that's who Lot was. And you can read about Lot and his daughters in Genesis 19. Um, and so when it's talking about the children in verse 8, Asura has also joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. That's Moab and Ammon. And then in verse 9, do to them as you did to Midian. Uh, God enabled Gideon to destroy the Midianites in Judges chapter 7. So that is probably the reference there. Again, these references here are probably not to one specific time period, but probably to many. And then also in verse 9, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kashan, Sisera and Jabin. Jabin was a king of Canaan and Sisera was his general early in the period of the judges. And God delivered the Israelites from them through the work of Deborah, Judges chapters 4 and 5. Verse 11, make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb. These were two leaders who were destroyed by the Ephraimites during Gideon's battle against the Midianites. uh, Also in Judges 7 that I referenced earlier. And then it goes on in verse 11, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmanah. Zeba and Zalmanah. Uh, these were Midianite kings who were captured and executed by Gideon. Judges chapter 8, you can read about that. So a lot of this refers maybe back to the time of the judges. And then in verse 12, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. That is the land of Israel where the shepherd, God, settled his sheep, the people of Israel. And so this quote is ascribed to Israel's enemies in order to highlight a blasphemous nature in their plots against Israel, defiling the Lord God. Verse 15. So, you pursue, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. We've seen this sort of language before where God's wrath is compared to a violent storm. For example, uh, Psalm 18, verse 7. We've gone over this before, but then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Nahum 1, 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. And so we've seen that sort of language before. Now, listen to this in verse 16. Fill their faces with shame 
that they may seek your name, O Lord. So the psalm supplies a redemptive reason behind the judgment. As God judges the wickedness of the attackers, they'll see their folly and they'll turn to him. So the, the psalmist's heart here is not just, God, we want revenge because we don't like these people and they don't like us. So, you know, squash them like a, a bug under a rock. That's not what they're saying. It's not the heart behind it. The heart is that these people may see the glory of God and turn to him. And we've gone over um, a few psalms where, that involve imprecations or curses. And that is usually the case here. Where, and that should be our cry if, if an injustice is being served, that we don't pray for God's justice and wrath to be poured out just because we don't like people, but so that he will be glorified, so that justice is served and so that people turn to him. Verse 18, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. The Hebrew words used here sound similar to the most common title of the Canaanite god, Baal. And so the poet is asking God to judge the nations so that they will see that Yahweh, not Baal, is the only God. We've seen psalmists do this utilize language that would have been common and familiar in uh, other cultures and even other religions of that time period. And it doesn't mean that they are acknowledging that these false gods are actually gods, but they are using language that, re that would relate to the surrounding nations, to the surrounding people, so that they can see that God, the Most High, is the one true God. And so, again, in our English language, we might not think anything about it, but in the Hebrew language here, uh, the, the words used really are similar to the title that, that was used for Baal. And so um, this was an interesting psalm to set to music, I'll say that, to say the least. Um, I set it in a minor key um, for obvious reasons because of the text. Um, but a, re a robust, bold prayer to God uh, through this Psalm 83 set to music. So uh, I'm glad to be back on track here on the Psalm Project as we continue this journey together. Thank you for listening today to the Active Worship Podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Against you they 